Well, I think it's fairly common for people to value things in their lives, to appreciate things in our lives more in hindsight than we probably typically do when we're actually experiencing those things in the moment. There are, of course, exceptions to that, but for the most part, and this is especially true of relationships, I think there's a tendency to have a greater appreciation for something we have experienced after the experience is over. Because our nature is to reflect on events and circumstances and relationships more so after they've ended than when they're actually in progress, which means we don't often gain the fullest sense of gratitude or appreciation for something or someone until that chapter of our lives has ended or is in the the process of ending. Uh, When a loved one is in the process of transitioning from this life to the next, we tend to get very reflective about those people and those relationships as they are dying, right? By far and away, the most appreciation that I ever hear expressed toward individual people is at their funerals. Uh, By far and away, the most regret that I ever hear expressed by people and how they handled their marriage is after the marriage is over. By far and away, the most value that I ever hear people assign to other people's work, to, to what they accomplish at their jobs, is at their retirement parties. Okay, we, we tend to be far more reflective and consequently more appreciative of things and people after those things and people have ended or moved on. And it makes me wonder, what if we slowed down a little bit and took the time to reflect on those people who God has placed in our lives and those experiences that we share with them? What if we took the time and made the effort to thoughtfully consider those things and those people significantly more before it's over? How different would our lives look? How differently would we live our lives if we gained a significantly significantly greater appreciation for others and, and assigned maybe a higher value to those relationships sooner rather than later? And furthermore, How different would the church of Jesus Christ be represented to the rest of the world if we loved and appreciated and valued one another as much now as we tend to after it's too late? And of course, being Father's Day, our thoughts turn toward our fathers maybe a bit more than usual, but really this applies to all of our close relationships and the experiences that we share within those relationships and more than any other This idea of valuing and appreciating relationships applies to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And yet, just as it is in our earthly families, it's easy to neglect our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, which, by the way, is to devalue that relationship. Do you know that our nature is to focus on what we value the most and to neglect that which we value the least? And the result of doing that is instead of finding our our great sense of belonging and blessing and provision in the relationship that he's given us, first and foremost being, of course, the relationship that we have with him because we've assigned the greatest value possible to, to that relationship with him. Instead, when we devalue our relationship with Christ and with other people that he's placed in our lives through neglecting those relationships, we end up looking... Uh, for other sources of belonging, for other sources of blessing and provision outside of those relationships, which ultimately can make a real mess of our lives. 
It's what leads people down the path of all sorts of destructive behaviors. It's why people have affairs and addictions and idols and all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors because we're searching for a sense of belonging and for blessing and for provision, all these things that we need. We're searching for those things outside of the sources that he's already given us for those things. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, which means everything that we need in this life, that sense of belonging, that sense of blessing and provision that we all long for, all of it can only be found ultimately in him. But it is his desire for us to come to him for all of it. And in that, he is glorified. And so he takes great pleasure in caring for us, in satisfying us in him. That, in fact, is a father's heart to provide for every aspect of the well-being of those in his family so that they may be satisfied in and provided for by the father. And of course, our responsibility in that is to place the highest value on that relationship by not neglecting it so that we may in turn be most satisfied in him, which brings us to our story today as we continue this sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph because as successful as Joseph has been in Egypt, apart from his father for over two decades now, at the end of his father's life, as Jacob is in his bed dying, Joseph comes to him, uh, not simply to comfort him or to say his final goodbyes. No, Joseph comes to his father on his deathbed to ask him for a blessing, a blessing from his father, which is truly amazing if you think about it. Because Joseph is the vizier, the second in command of all of Egypt. He's the second most powerful man in this great nation. He was unimaginably wealthy. His power and influence were unequaled. His legacy was secure. His contributions to the Egyptian people and far beyond them were astonishing. He single-handedly designed and executed a plan that saved untold masses of human lives through an unprecedented famine. Joseph had fame, fortune, respect, power, He was loved by the masses and his accomplishments would shape nations for centuries to come. Why in the world on his father's deathbed would Joseph come seeking a blessing from a broken down 147 year old nearly blind man who kept livestock for a living? It wasn't like Joseph needed the money, right? He wasn't looking for a bigger share in the family business. No, Joseph was looking for something that he couldn't get anywhere else. What he wanted could only come from his father. And likewise, it was in his father's heart to give to Joseph what he knew he alone could give, which he does as Joseph, along with his two young sons, come to Jacob's bedside in what really is a beautiful picture of a father's heart for his children. So we're going to read it together. We'll pick up right where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 48, and we'll begin with the first seven verses. Let's read it. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So Jacob is dying. And, and so Joseph, along with his two sons, come uh, to Jacob's bed. By the way, uh, these were most likely the only two sons that Joseph had at this point. When, when Jacob refers to Joseph's other sons, he's talking about any other sons that may be born to him in the future. It's why Joseph only has the two with him and why the blessings that are coming only go to those two. And unprompted, Jacob begins to recall these promises that God made to him upon his return from Bethel or Luz from Padan Aram earlier in his life. And uh, you can read about that in chapter 35 where God appears to Jacob and, and he changes his name to Israel and he pronounces all of these blessings over him. And as we see with all of the dying patriarchs in ancient Hebrew culture, Jacob is recalling these promises as he's dying because it is his primary concern now before he passes from this life to the next to ensure the fulfillment or the, the passing along of these promises. And then without even breaking his stride and, and in the same context of recalling all of these promises of God, Jacob does something that at first seems to be totally out of left field, like completely off of the subject, but actually it's a very significant part of the fulfillment of God's promises. And not only that, it is a profoundly beautiful example of the heart of a father. As Jacob says to Joseph in verse 5, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, it wasn't uncommon uh, in the ancient Orient for family members to adopt other family members' children. We have ancient Ugaritic texts that are engraved on clay tablets in what is now modern-day Syria that record grandfathers adopting grandsons. So it's not the adoption itself that's so striking here. Rather, the fact that, first of all, Joseph's two sons were as much, if not more, Egyptian than they were Hebrew. Right? Remember, Joseph's wife was the daughter of one of the pagan Egyptian priests. So by birth, these two boys were 50% Egyptian. But also, they're raised in Egyptian culture, in the Egyptian royal court, far away from Canaan and Jacob and Rachel and the, the Hebrew people in their culture. And yet, Jacob not only adopts them here, but he elevates their status as heirs to the equivalent of Jacob's oldest two sons, Reuben and Simeon, which not only has uh, tremendous future ramifications for the Jewish people, but it sends a powerful message to Joseph that even though they were separated for so long, and even though these boys don't share the same heritage as some of the other grandchildren, Jacob, in effect, says to Joseph, who, by the way, has always valued his relationship with his father more than any of the other brothers, Jacob says, your boys 
are my boys. They are as fully mine and fully heirs to the promises of God as anyone else in this family. And even more so because I'm elevating them to the status of the two firstborn. You have to understand, this was infinitely more than just sentiment, right? The bestowal of a blessing by a dying patriarch in ancient Hebrew culture carried with it irrevocable authority. This was a big, big deal. And Joseph would have understood it for what it was. Not only an amazing acceptance of his own children, but a powerful statement from Jacob as to the the preeminence of Joseph himself in that family because of his faithfulness to his father and the value and appreciation that he placed on that relationship compared to the other brothers. You see, Jacob was saying to Joseph in the most tangible and powerful way possible, you and even your sons who have lived most of your lives away from me, away from this family, away from God's promised land, you are fully mine. You belong to me as much or more as all of the others who were raised in my house. This is the heart of a father on display as Jacob makes certain before he dies that Joseph and even his children understand that even though you were raised in a foreign land by foreign people in a foreign culture that as much as anyone else you belong right here right here in this family with me okay a father takes responsibility for his family the heart of a father says even though you weren't raised the same way I would have raised you even though you've been taught and exposed to things that probably are not the best for you even though you may not think you belong in this family you are mine which is exactly what God says to us his children Look, you can take someone who has spent their entire life in church, someone who gave their heart to Christ at six years old and participated in every church musical and Bible quiz and Sunday school class and church activity since then. Someone who's done street evangelism and gone on every missions trip, been baptized three times and memorized entire chapters of the Bible. Right, And by the way, I'm not mocking any of that. It's actually wonderful when I meet uh, people with that kind of heritage. But listen, you can take someone else who was raised by a single mother because their father left them in an abusive situation, exposed to every kind of vile activity, far away from any semblance of the Christian religion. Someone who has never known kindness or goodness or forgiveness. Someone who has never read a Bible or darkened the door of a church in their entire life. And you can stand those two people next to each other. And the moment the second person comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ like the first person already has. In that moment, the father says, you are no different than the first person as far as my family is concerned. In the exact same way that the first person is mine, you also are now mine. You belong in my family. You are my responsibility now. This is really the good news of the gospel. It's the message that we should be sharing with everyone outside of the family of God at every possible opportunity before we die because it's the heart of the Father. That anyone, 
no matter how they've been raised, no matter what they've been taught, no matter how far from God's family they have been, they too can be grafted into this family with equal standing in the eyes of our father as anyone else in the family because it has nothing to do with a religion and everything to do with a relationship. That relationship with Jesus Christ is an open invitation. Regardless of your background, regardless of your previous experiences or affiliations, and in that sense, actually the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most tolerant and inclusive message available for the world today, even though some would say otherwise. There are aspects of the gospel, of course, that are intolerant and exclusive, but not this one. The heart of the Father says, you belong. You belong in this family. It's not a perfect family, far from it. Has its ups and downs. Doesn't get everything right. But listen, when you're a part of this family, you are looked after. You are loved because the Father takes responsibility for his children. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 16. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Joseph brings the boys near to Jacob, and after Jacob asks, who are these? Because first of all, just like his father Isaac, Jacob is now nearly blind and needs to be able to correctly identify which grandson is which. But this is also a part of the formal process in Hebrew culture of adopting and then blessing these two, uh, two boys, which begins with the question, who are these? Again, it's a formal preface in that culture to an official utterance. Just as Isaac asked the question, who are you in Genesis 27 before conferring his blessing to Jacob? And then, then he kisses the two boys and he embraces them in verse 10, which again was not merely a sign of his uh, affection toward them. It was that, but it was also much more than that. Okay, This embracing of the two boys and kissing them uh, from Jacob was also actually a, a formal part of the legal process of adoption, sealing that adoption. And then Joseph, in turn, does something that further proves the value that he placed on the relationship that he has with his father, this Egyptian ruler, this great ruler with ultimate authority over all of the people of Egypt, an incredibly powerful man. Joseph performs the greatest act of reverence and honor that he could. He bows his face to the ground before Jacob. As Jacob follows through on his word then, 
to adopt these two boys, to include them fully into his family. And then verse 15 says he crossed his hands, thereby bestowing the greater blessing on the younger child, which we'll talk more about in a moment. And then it says he blessed Joseph and he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So uh, Jacob's creating the picture here of the sheep who walk ahead of the shepherd, the shepherd who drives and oversees and protects and cares for the sheep from behind. And then he continues, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Jacob confers the promise of God to himself over Joseph's two sons, which again is a wonderful picture of the heart of a father blessing his children, okay? A father blesses his family. One of the greatest needs among children worldwide is the need for the approval, the blessing of their fathers. It's a fundamental need in human beings. And in fact, that need doesn't go away in adulthood. There are people who spend their entire lives seeking the blessing of their fathers, particularly those who never feel like they've received it. It's such a powerful need to have the blessing of one's father that very commonly when we're trying to help someone here with all kinds of uh, destructive behaviors in their life, very commonly what we come down to is dysfunction in their past relationship with their father. Happens all the time. And even though many people don't realize it, they are still seeking the blessing from their fathers that they so strongly yearn for. And although unfortunately... Because we live in a broken world, some people never get that blessing. They never get that approval that they're seeking for their earthly father. But listen, we serve a heavenly father whose desire and intention is to bless his children. Jesus said, Mary Beth read it earlier, which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 9 through 11. It, it is God's desire and intention to bless his children. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. But what's interesting is, as you read through scripture after scripture in regard to God's blessings, there's a pattern that you find over and over and over again. God's blessing, his approval in our lives is directly tied to the relationship that we have with him and the value that we assign to that relationship. Again, it's not about religious performance. It's about genuine relationship and the value that we put on that relationship. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires, the desires of your heart. Psalm 35, 27 says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who what? Who delights in the welfare of his servant. Proverbs 5, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It's all talking about relationship and he will make straight your paths. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, as he blesses his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
who revere him, who respect him, who honor him, just like Joseph does with Jacob. Can you see how all of the blessing and approval and care that we seek from the Father is born out of a closeness of relationship that we have with him? It all goes back to how much we value that relationship, which is evidenced in how we live our lives. And again, it's not about performance. It's about evidence. In other words, the life that is sold out to Christ That's not the payment that we owe in order to be close to him. No, the life that is sold out to Christ is the evidence that we are already close to him. The closeness, the the access that we have to him is a gift from him. The degree to which we take advantage of that gift is the evidence of how much we actually value that gift. I heard another preacher once say it this way. He said, you're as close to God right now as you want to be. In other words, whatever blessing you seek from the Father, according to his will, of course, whatever closeness and approval you desire from him, it's yours for the taking because it is his desire and in fact his intention to bless you. But he cannot bless you if you won't come near to him. He wants to embrace you. He wants to be close to you. He wants to bless you, but he won't force any of that on you. So it's on us. It's on us to place enough value on that relationship to be close enough to him, to be able to receive the blessings that he wants to give us. James, the brother of Jesus said, draw near to God. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4.8. Draw near to God and you will be blessed beyond your greatest desire because the heart of the Father is to bless his family. Let's finish the chapter, verse 17, to the end. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this, is, uh, this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel, will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Jacob pronounces the blessing over Ephraim and Manasseh, but he crosses his hands, which is a remarkably important detail because in ancient history, the right hand, especially the right hand of a father, held tremendous significance. It was a, a sign of power and blessing and authority. We see that all throughout Scripture. And so immediately after Jacob crosses his hands, putting his right hand on Ephraim, the younger of the two sons, and pronounces the blessing, Joseph protests. Verse 17 says, when he saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And I'll just tell you, uh, the English translation doesn't even come close to expressing the true force of Joseph's protest here. 
the word displeased in the original Hebrew in this verse is the word ra'ah, which means to be broken into pieces. Okay? This was initially at least a devastating turn of events for Joseph, for his oldest son to be passed over for the greatest blessing. So he grabs his father's hand to move it over to uh, Manasseh. And again, we don't get the full force of what Joseph did in the English version because when it says he took his father's hand to move it, the word took in the Hebrew is the word tamak, which implies a seizing, a violent taking hold, a firm hold of his hand. In other words, this was a harsh reaction, almost panicked by Joseph when he sees what his father did, but it was too late. The blessing had already been given. And of course, we don't know specifically why Jacob did what he did, but we know it seemed to be a pattern in the family. Just as Jacob, the younger of the two brothers, received his father's blessing over Esau, who also in turn attempted to reverse the blessing given to his younger brother. But it was too late because a father's blessing once uttered was irreversible. So an extremely uh, tense moment here until he explains to Joseph that he knows exactly what he's doing. It's okay. This was not a mistake. It was all going to be okay because both of the boys ultimately would become great and be blessed. And then Jacob goes on to say to Joseph, moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Uh, Back in chapter 33, Jacob bought a piece of land from the Canaanites near the city of Shechem. And then in uh, chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, put their swords to that city in defense of their sister. Uh, I won't go into that story now. The point is, when Jacob says to Joseph, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope uh, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and bow, The translation of the phrase one mountain slope in the ancient Hebrew is literally one Shechem. So Jacob is informing Joseph here that the part of the promised land he fought for, he was giving to Joseph alone and ultimately to his heirs instead of the other brothers. In fact, uh, in Joshua 24, we see Joseph being reinterred or reburied in that very land at Shechem. And verse 32 says, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And so in this one powerful scene where Jacob adopts and blesses Joseph's children, he also provides for Joseph, which is the heart of a father to provide for his children, okay? A father provides for his family. And our father in heaven provides for us everything that we need. And yet so often... We still look to the world to meet our needs and then we wonder what went wrong when the world fails to satisfy us. Listen, God never intended for us to have our needs met by this world. That was always and still is his job to provide for his family, which is why we will always be dissatisfied with whatever we get from this world because this world is incapable of providing for us all that we need. And yet people often ask why their prayers aren't being answered or why God hasn't provided for their need yet. And my first question is always, what is your relationship with him like? How much value have you put into that relationship up to now? In other words, I know when a need arises, you're praying for that need to be met. And that's good and that's right. But what about the days and the weeks and the months before that need showed up? 
How much time have you been spending cultivating that relationship with him all along? Because at the end of the day, it all comes back to a relationship and what we value the most. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 33. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows. He knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, seek first that relationship with me, and I'll take care of everything else right? He says you'll take care of all of our needs. What's the key? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. To seek first the kingdom of God is to submit our entire lives, including our needs, to the rule and reign of Christ in our hearts, and to seek first his righteousness is to seek a right relationship with him. It all comes back to relationship and valuing that relationship with Christ more than anything else so that we seek him first before anything else. And look, when we do that, he says, I'll meet every need. Okay? Our problem is not that we need more from him. Our problem is that we need more of him. We need to be constantly cultivating our relationship with Christ by drawing close to him like James said that's the key to all of this but so many people and I'm talking about believers followers of Jesus Christ so many people are searching for a sense of belonging and for blessings and for provision outside of the relationship with Jesus Christ by doing so we not only come up short every time but we're actually devaluing our relationship with him when we fail to trust him to meet our every need but all of that can only be found in him. None of the other places that we look for fulfillment, not one of them can provide us with all that we need. Only he can do that. And furthermore, it is his desire to provide all of that for us. And all that he wants, all that he wants from us in return is for us to seek him first, before and above everything else and everyone else. So ask yourself, is he more important to you than your job? Is he more important to you than your money? Is Jesus more important to you than everything you own? Be honest with yourself. Is he more important to you than your friends? 
Is he more important to you than your spouse? Is Jesus Christ more important to you than your children? Is he more important to you than anything you could ever attain in this world? Is he more important to you than everything else in your entire life combined? Because if he is, then you'll seek him first before any of those other things. And when you do that, when you value him that much, he's glorified in you. And he not only takes care of you, but he takes great pleasure in caring for you because he wants you to be satisfied in him because he loves you. It's his desire to give you all that you need and more. That is a father's heart. Let's pray.